overtimes, buzzer beaters, game-winning shots, game-tying shots. The Big East was full of them this weekend. And I'm going to talk about all of them here on this episode of the Igloo. What's up, y'all? It's Timmy Ice, and let me just say, Sunday's quadruple header in the Big East lived up to the hype. But first, let's talk about what happened on Saturday. Don't want to ignore what happened in non-conference play in a couple of in-state showdowns, starting with the Crossroads Classic, Butler taking on Indiana at Banker's Life Fieldhouse. Butler looked good early on. Indiana started off good, and keep in mind, they still didn't have Aaron Thompson. But Butler looked good early on. Well, Indiana started off good, like I said, but then Butler rallied and led by as many as nine late in the first half. But Indiana scored the last four points of the half to go down by five, and Indiana's defense just shut Butler down in the second half, and I think it partially had to do with Butler, I think, kind of just running out of gas towards the end of the half. Uh, you know, like, well, not really towards the end of the half, but towards the end of the game. You know, they went up 37-28 with a minute three left in the first half, and then Indiana just surged in front, and they actually took the lead on a three by Armand Franklin, with 15.56 remaining in the second half. So basically over the span of just over five minutes. They went on a 13-3 run to take the lead. And from there they just didn't look back. As Indiana wins 68-60. to And the man who led the way for the Hoosiers. No surprise. Trace Jackson Davis. Son of Pacers legend Dale Davis. 21 points and 8 rebounds. Armand Franklin, who I mentioned before, he was lights out from deep 5 of 7 and finished with 20 points. And then Al Durham had 11 points and Race Thompson had 10. So those four guys really led the way for the Hoosiers. Meanwhile, four different Bulldogs in double figures. They combined for 50 of the team's 60 points. Jared Bolden. Knocked down six three-pointers, was six of nine from distance, six of 12 overall, finished with 20 points. And then three uh, three Bulldogs finished with 10 points each. Bryce Golden, in his first game back, had 10 points. And so did Miles Tate. And then Jacoby Coles off the bench had 10 points. And then Chuck Harris had six, Bryce Enzi with just four, but Enzi had 10 rebounds. As a team, Butler struggled just 39% from the floor, but shockingly, 47% from downtown. Meanwhile, Indiana was phenomenal from the field, 53%. So the Hoosiers win this Crossroads Classic battle. Meanwhile, Villanova, the number seven team in the country, hosted St. Joe's coming in winless. Villanova struggled early on, but again, with a... Eight-point halftime lead, and they would run away with it in the second half as they win it by 20, 88-68. And the guy who led the way for Nova, Jeremiah Robinson Earl, 
25 points, 7 rebounds. How about 6 assists for him as well? 8 of 14 from the field, 2 of 5 from downtown. Caleb Daniels had 19 points, 18 points, 6 rebounds, and 7 assists for Justin Moore. 12 for Jermaine Samuels, and Colin Gillespie had a bit of a quiet night. 7 points, 3 boards, and 2 assists. And then off the bench, Eric Dixon with 4, Cole Swider with 3, and then leading the way for St. Joe's. They somehow kept Ryan Daly in check. He had just 11 points. And then leading the way for the Hawks with 17 points each were Jordan Hall and Taylor Funk. And then, surprisingly, they got 13 points from their bench. Longpree, Tracy, and Forrest contributed off the bench. St. Joe's, they fall to 0-4. Villanova up to 7-1. And And with the most recent AP poll, they are now number 5 in the country, back in the top 5. Let's talk about this quadruple header, shall we? So many good games. Starting and it started with Creighton and UConn, the Huskies in their first Big East game since rejoining the conference. It was the James James Booknight show for the Huskies. As he scored a career high 40 points. And Creighton, they were dominant early on. They led by as many as 12 in the first half. But UConn rallied to cut it down to just four at the half. And it was a back-and-forth affair throughout most of the second half. And UConn, they led by as many as four with about three and a half minutes to go. But Creighton rallied thanks to some missed free throws from the Huskies and then a game-tying free th- a game-tying shot from Damian Jefferson with about two-tenths of a second left. That forced overtime, and in overtime, Creighton would run away with it and win uh, 76-74, the final. Booknight hit a three at the buzzer that brought it down to two, which ended up being a significant play to some, if you know what I mean. So, again, Booknight with 40 of UConn's 74 points. Only one other Husky was in double figures. That was R.J. Cole with 12. And Cole, who hadn't missed a free throw all season up until yesterday, missed two big free throws that allowed Creighton to tie the game at the end of regulation. Meanwhile, for the Blue Jays, Christian Bishop with 19 points, including a huge acrobatic play on an alley-oop made the adjustment midair to get it off glass that put the game kind of out of reach all five Creighton starters were in double figures 13 for Mitch Ballack 11 for Marcus Zigorowski but Zigorowski struggled from deep just one of eight from behind the arc and then 10 points each for Damian Jefferson and Denzel Mahoney Antoine Jones had six Alex Alex O'Connell with two Ryan Kalkbrenner had five so That is a big win for the Blue Jays. And because of their earlier loss last week against Marquette, they ended up dropping to number 13 in the AP poll. How about this, though? Marquette Xavier, this was a gong show. Just like last year when they met in Cincinnati. 
It was a back and forth game. No, t- it was really a stalemate. Stalemate for most of the game. No team really gaining a big advantage. And it was a shootout. It was only 34-33 at the half. But how about 112 second half points combined? And it looked like Xavier, you know, had it, you know, late. They were up as many as seven with three minutes to go after a Nate Johnson three. But Marquette just chipped away, chipped away, got it down to two with about 35 seconds left. And then after, you know, two free throws from Jason Carter, Kobe McEwen had a huge four-point play, and he had a couple big shots at Xavier last year, as did the now-graduated Sakar Annam. And then, so tied to 88, I think everyone knows how this went. Scrugg, Paul Scruggs trying to go in for the game-winning shot. He misses. Rebound tapped out to Adam Kunkel, who takes it, takes a dribble, steps back from behind the arc, and knocks down a buzzer-beating three to keep Xavier undefeated. Final score, 91-88 to for Scruggs, uh, 29 points. That was a game high. Four rebounds and six assists. But Adam Kunkel, the hero of the game, 17 minutes played, 22 points in just his third game after getting a waiver. 7 of 9 from the field, 2 of 4 from downtown. But that three at the buzzer being the difference maker. 14 points for Nate Johnson, 9 for Zach Fremantle, 7 for Jason Carter, 6 for Colby Jones. And that kind of made up for quiet days from Kiki Tandy and Brian Griffin. And Ben Stanley in his debut played just five minutes. Didn't score a point, but grabbed two rebounds. And that's big, you know, getting the contributions from Kunkel with Dwan Odom being out due to COVID protocols. Meanwhile, for Marquette, all five starters and double figures. How about 20 points each for Dawson Garcia and Kobe McEwen? Jamal Kane had 10 points, 7 rebounds, 3 assists. Theo John had 14 points but fouled out. DJ Carton also fouled out. He had 10 points and 5 assists. And then each of Marquette's bench players scored. Justin Lewis had 6 points, 3 points from Samir Torrance, 5 points from Greg Elliott. So Xavier stays unbeaten, and because of that, they now move into the top 25 at number 22 in the country. Meanwhile, Providence taking on Seton Hall. Seton Hall had won five in a row against the Friars at the Prudential Center. And this was an evenly contested game all throughout. Seton Hall actually led by as many as nine. But credit Providence, they fought back. And actually went on a big run to, you know, lead for most of the second half. But the guy, after having a quiet game for most of this game, Sandro Mamukelashvili came alive in the final minute or so. Getting free throws, and then he got a huge three-point play on a dunk that actually with the three-point play made it 72 apiece, and that's what the score would be going into overtime. But Providence ends up winning thanks to a game-winning three from their big shot maker, A.J. Reeves. 
hitting a three in the corner with about three and a half seconds to go that and uh to call Molson missing a three at the buzzer it was a good inbound play and a good look but it just wasn't enough as Providence steals one at the rock and ends Brian Custer's 26 game win streak um when he would be on the call for Seton Hall so Providence ending a rather historic streak that kind of gathered a cult following from the Seton Hall community and really anyone in the Big East that would follow. So, stars of the game, Nate Watson, 23 points and 11 rebounds, 10 of 16 shooting, 18 points for David Duke along with 10 rebounds. So both of those guys with big double-doubles. Jared Bynum, 9 points, finally made his first three of the season in this game. A.J. Reeves had just seven points, but that three-pointer proved to be huge. And the difference maker to give Providence the win. Noah Horsler, just 13 minutes as the starter, five points. But the guy who stepped up off the bench, 25 minutes, and a guy who was relatively quiet heading into this, heading into this game, his uh, scoring average actually went up big. After this game, and uh, you know something to marvel at. You know, if we want to go back, you know, in his first four games, he had only scored sixteen points. Sunday against Seton Hall, he had 10, including two huge three-pointers. Also worth noting, Greg Gant with five, Ed Croswell with three. And for the Pirates, Mamu came alive in the second half to score 20 points. He also had six rebounds and six assists. Jared Roden and Miles Kale each had 16 points, but Kale was phenomenal from deep. Four of five from beyond the arc, six of nine from the field. Shavar Reynolds had 12 points. 2 of 4 from distance, 5 of 9 from the field. And then other than that, not really much. Ico Biago had 6 points and 9 rebounds. Molson had 5 points and Tyree Samuel only had 2. But the big difference maker, Providence shot 50% from behind the arc, 9 of 18 from distance, while Seton Hall was just 7 of 21, good for just 33%. And then the percentage-wise from the field, uh, Providence had the edge 46.8% to just 43.5 for Seton Hall. And that proved to be a difference maker. Providence just shot it better, and that made all the difference as they go into Newark, steal one from the Pirates, and get their first winning conference play in their opener after not playing for the past week and a half. Meanwhile, St. John's, as we cross over into New York City, uh, crossing the bridge into New York, St. John's looking for revenge against Georgetown after blowing a blowing it, you know, in DC a week before. And St. John's controlled most of this game, but Georgetown, you know, they chipped away and chipped away, but St. John's was able to do enough to pull away and win this 94 to 83. Stars of the game for St. John's. How about two guys with at least 20 points? Greg Williams with 26. Four of six from behind the arc, seven to twelve from the field, and then Julian Champenny had twenty to go along with nine rebounds. 
Also, you had Vince Cole with 17 points in his first start in quite a while. Pasha Alexander had 10 points. Isaiah Moore off the bench had 12 points in just 13 minutes. Then Marcellus Erlington had five, Rasheem Dunn with just three. Meanwhile, for Georgetown, Javon Blair stepped up with 25 points. 19 points from Donald Carey, the Siena transfer. Kudus Wahab, St. John's finally kept him in check. He had just 12 points and six rebounds and fouled out. And a relatively quiet night for Jamarco Pickett. Yes, 11 rebounds, but he was just 2 of 12 from the field, finished with just 6 points. Off the bench, Chudier Bile with 7 points, 6 for Timothy Ego Hefe. And then you had 1 point for Malcolm Wilson and 2 from Jamari Sibley. 5 points from another freshman, Dante Harris. So St. John's finally gets in the win column in Big East play with a 94-83 win. Georgetown, they fall to just 1-2 and two in conference, and they will make the short trip to Newark to take on Seton Hall in their next game on Wednesday, which I'll have predictions for on the next episode of the Igloo because I'm going to hit you with back-to-back episodes today and tomorrow. Um, but I covered Seton Hall and St. John's uh, to round out my weekend in review. And joining me to talk Seton Hall and St. John's, Two guys from Daily Dose of Hoops, Jaden Daly and Jason Garrett. They'll join me next to talk about those games and, of course, looking ahead to the rest of their conference slates uh, looking ahead. So that is coming up next here on the Igloo. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back inside the Igloo, y'all. Get some holiday cheer in because on this episode – keeping these holiday festivities going. I got a, a holiday party worth attending. I mean, it's it's a three-way party, but it doesn't really matter because I got two guys from Daily Dose of Hoops, the founder, Jane Daly, who mainly covers St. John's, but he covers all over the place. Uh, and then, of course, a, a fellow Seton Hall alum, uh, Jason Garrett. Uh, both of these guys have been on the show before, but I've never gotten them together. I had them on – a Seton Hall St. John's preview last year in separate parts, but now I got them both together for this. Jaden, Jason, pleasure to have you guys on again. Always, Timmy. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. So, uh, let's talk about what happened on Sunday. I mean, it was a big day of basketball across the Big East, but four really good games. I mean, Georgetown St. John's, we'll get to that. I mean, it was less contested than the other three before that, but Providence Seton Hall was a thriller uh, at the Rock, going into overtime, and honestly, I don't even know if that game should have gone to overtime. Seton Hall pulled a rabbit out of the hat just to force overtime, but in the end, Providence would win it on a game-winning three with about three and a half seconds left from A.J. Reeves, who has just had this knack for making big shots for the Friars, so uh, Jason, uh, I'll put this to you. Um a game which Seton Hall was controlling early on. They let slip out of their grasp, and Providence essentially gave it back to them in a way to force, as, as the Pirates ended up forcing overtime uh, with a monster performance at the end of regulation and, of course, into OT with Mamu. Uh, so, overall, what were even in defeat, their first in-conference play so far, what were the big takeaways uh, from the Pirates um, in, a, in a heartbreaking defeat to Providence. 
Well, well, first of all, in the years past, uh, particularly since um, the New Big East was was formed, Seton Hall and Providence always play each other really close. It, it, there's very rarely uh, any sort of blowout either way, and I don't really think either team controlled controlled the other early because both teams were shooting well over fifty percent, and it was a very entertaining uh, first half. And where where Seton Hall kind of lost it, they built up a lead early in the second half and had a lot of chances to extend it. Uh, they had four shots on one possession, missed them all, including a, a layup and a couple open three pointers. And then Providence, you knew you knew that because Ed Cooley has his team play this way all the time, you knew that they wouldn't quit no matter what. They were down nine at that point, and then they came all the way back. So it, it is a tough way to lose, particularly uh, on the missed call by by the official in overtime. Uh, not going to harp on that, of course. Jamie Lucky's a veteran official who is, a, you know, a, a, he's been around the block a few times. It was just you know, one that he frankly missed. So it was a tough way to lose, uh, but a pretty inspiring comeback. Uh, Mamu struggled all game long and then got it going late when his team really needed him. So it's it's one of those losses that you can't really dwell on because it's it, one of those things that just happens. Shots weren't falling for neither Mamu nor anybody in the second half. And they were, uh, I think, fortunate to force overtime to, to be in that position. And then to lose the way they did was another kind of piece of unfortunate luck. And uh, Brian Custer, man, his, his streak ends at 26 in a row. It was impressive while it lasted, but uh, 2020 claiming another victim there. Yeah, I was literally going to say that, man. Like, you know, 2020 has already claimed so much. And, of course, right towards the end of the year, we got to have the end of the legendary Custer streak, 26 in a row, which I don't think any, any broadcaster will ever even come close to that with another team uh and and honestly you know no fault on Custer's fault and I, I think it's really funny that he you know tried to like take some onus for the loss and a little bit of the blame but you can't really fault him but I mean it, even if even in a loss I feel like it was refreshing to see him back on the call though from the rock yeah his his streak was like the DiMaggio 56 game hit streak of broadcasting like it's it's something that I don't think anybody has ever accomplished before and and maybe never again that it was it was that kind of an unbelievable uh run for Custer and and you know it took on a life of its own he he was interviewed I think for for a couple stories about it and uh he he, he embraced it as just one of those wacky things in uh in sports now I wonder if Kevin Willard ever gave him the wine bottle you know, I would bet. I would bet that he eventually did. <laughs> you know, speaking speaking of Willard, though, Jade, and I'll get this to you because I know I, uh, uh, you put out um, you know, a post game article with uh, quite a few Willard quotes. Uh, what were your biggest takeaways from what he said post game? I think one of the biggest things that really surprised me in this one was how Willard assessed that he needs to take on more of a role in getting Miles Kale ready to go in the second half saying that it was more, and Bryce Aiken as well, more his fault than anybody else's as to not being able to get them going. And, of course, with Bryce, he's still coming back from a sprained ankle and is coming off a surgically repaired ACL that was torn when he was at Harvard. So it's all a matter of patience. And I think he has enough equity invested within the Seton Hall fan base to where the trust can be reciprocated. And they're not calling for his head or they're not on the ledge like they would have been a few years ago before all the recruits and all the winning happened. So it's just a matter of time. And to be five and four through the schedule that Seton Hall's played, 
on the road at Rhode Island, neutral side against Oregon, who's always a contender every year, the big comeback against Penn State, the big win at Marquette, to beat St. John's in the Big East opener with Mamu going for 32. You really can't ask for a much better start for Seton Hall, all things considered, with how everything's played out. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, two and one, I mean, and, and, you know, hopefully, you know, if they take care of business against Georgetown to be three and one in conference play, you know, heading into the holidays, I, I think that puts them in a really good position. Um, you know, we are expecting this team to be in the top four, top five at the very least in this league. And, you know, that three and one start will most certainly keep them at that level for now. It's just matters of, you know, sustaining it. Uh, but, you know, speaking of Georgetown, um, they're going to be closing out their Metropolitan Road Trip, um, of course, at the Rock on Wednesday. But they were in Queens Sunday. I believe it's the first time they played at Carnesecca since the early 80s. And a, in a game St. John's absolutely had to have for revenge, St. John's was able to do that. And they looked really impressive at points. I think they were up by as many as tw- at least 20 at one point. And Georgetown chipped away, chipped away. They, they hung around like they tend to do for whatever reason. But uh, credit St. John's, they did what they needed to do uh, to win this game. Um, Thanks a lot. And, yeah, and, and Jaden, I, I really believe – like I said, especially after the performance against Creighton where they essentially got ran out of their own gym, you know, they absolutely needed this and needed a strong effort. And I feel like they got that. Uh, granted, wasn't the sexiest of games, only an 11-point win, which, by the way, I'm on record of calling on the dot. But I feel like to finally get that first win and win – you know, instead of pulling out a nail biter, I feel like you got to be pleased with that if you're Mike Anderson. Yeah, absolutely. And my apologies for the audio problems a few minutes ago. But St. John's beat Georgetown in pretty much the same vein that it beat Creighton nine months ago, with Greg Williams having a career night and the backcourt really creating its own energy to neutralize Georgetown up front. Wahab was the, pro- the problem that the Red Storm couldn't solve in D.C. a week ago, almost went for a triple-double. And the problem with Georgetown, I think, Tim, earlier in the year is you have so many young pieces and not enough, I think, of of an infusion of team chemistry so far. You you see that? And they're missing something down low, too. Omer Yurtseven was a top-10 ACC big, and when he got to Georgetown last year – he made such a difference down low, altering shots, forcing teams to go more to a perimeter attack. Patrick Ewing's still searching for the right combination, and I think St. John's prayed off of that after letting a seven-point lead get away a week before, knowing what it had to do. Posh Alexander had an impact, and when he is aggressive, for a freshman point guard, when he is aggressive, St. John's is clearly a better team, and you've seen it several times throughout the year, the Boston College game up at Mohegan Sun being one of those, and also against Stony Brook not too far after that. Yeah, and, I mean, I don't think they wanted to start one and three. I mean, they probably want to be two and two. Uh, but, you know, there's still a lot of season left. We know how talented St. John's is, um, and I think it's fairly obvious they haven't played to their full potential yet. And we know that the kind of schedule that they have coming up, and – they're essentially going to have two weeks off 
before their next game when they host DePaul at Carneseca. Um, so, you know, you know, between the time off, what do you think are going to be the big adjustments they're going to have to make in order to uh, play more to their potential? Because, you know, in my preseason um, rankings, I had the St. John's – I had this team at seven in the conference. I had them as one of the last four in for the NCAA tournament because they have the talent to get in it. Uh, so, I guess the question is, um, what are the adjustments they're going to have to make to prove that they're at that NCAA tournament level in terms of their talent and how can they go about playing like it more? Yeah, I had them sixth, so we're pretty much in the same boat. I think solving the inconsistency is is one of the problems. There there are stretches where this team is bipolar, Tim. They'll go on, a, on an 18-3 to three run and then they'll give up 10 or 12 unanswered a few minutes later. The consistency has to be there. The perimeter attack has to be there as well between Greg Williams, Rasheem Dunn, Alexander. Julian Champagny is a phenomenal player, but he can't do it all. And when you saw Isaiah Moore go for 26 and 14 not too long ago, you saw another player that could do it from the wing and from an interior standpoint. Now, I'm worried about Vince Cole being a streaky volume shooter. Yeah, he had the two big knockdown threes to beat St. Peter's and Ryder. St. John shouldn't be struggling against MAC programs, especially for a team of, of this talent and this magnitude to go down to the wire with two teams from the MAC. No disrespect to that conference. That's an indictment on St. John's being able to string together a full 40 minutes. That's been the biggest thing with Mike Anderson's system. It's just so complex and so predicated on pressure and intensity that it, sometimes it's hard to put a full 40 minutes together, but that's what this team needs to do. And also, they got to monitor DePaul. DePaul just started practicing again today. They finally got out of what was their third or fourth shutdown. God willing, they'll be able to hold the momentum for a few weeks and get some games in because that's a talented team too. So St. John's just has to – find itself, get into a groove, and just get some consistency flowing because when that happens, they're as good as anyone. Yeah, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about um, Georgetown Seton Hall. Um, so we saw what Georgetown did against St. John's. You know, they got themselves down quite a bit. But this is a resilient team. This is a team that plays like a cellar dweller in the league um, in terms of, you know, finding themselves in these big holes, but they have the resilience of a cellar dweller where they just don't go down. So if you're Seton Hall, like what's the mentality you got to have, you know, going up against an opponent like this? Same mentality they always have, which is, uh, I mean, it's, it's a well-established identity at this point. So you, I would expect Seton Hall to come out and play like Seton Hall uh, based on what the, the comments were in post game uh, from from this most recent game, from the from the loss to Providence, I don't really have a any qualms about them bouncing back from it. Mamu kind of was very matter of fact and said, "You know what? This is I just I was not good today. I, I, my shot wasn't falling, and uh, I, I don't think he'll he'll uh, suffer really any after effects uh, mentally from that." Um, uh, it's, it's a veteran team. Uh, they they know what they know who they are. Um, they know what adjustments to make. Probably from watching the film, it was. It was uh, obvious um, when, when watching it, but Coach Willard and, and Mamu also said in the post game they kind of need to get him going more early in games, and then let everybody else feed off of that. Now, uh, 
Mamu was passing the ball really well, uh, and everybody they were, he was passing to was knocking down their shots early, so it kind of worked uh, to help keep pace with Providence in the first half uh, on Sunday. But um, if I, I think Mamu is a, a matchup nightmare for anybody, and uh, for for facing a team like Georgetown, expected to be in the in the bottom of the Big East this year, even though it is a conference game and you can't take anybody lightly, I, I think this is a matchup that Seton Hall should be able to handle uh, uh, at home. And, you know, I think um, you talk about that matchup nightmare and like, you know, pound for pound with everything that he does, you know, you can make the argument that mom was the best overall player in this league, you know, but obviously there's going to be this big discussion about who can win biggest player of the year. Mom was going to be right up there. Uh, but, you know, I feel like in the grand scheme of things, you know, you think about look at what James Booknight did. Yeah, uh, on Sunday as well. He, I mean, he put up a 40-piece in a loss to Creighton. Uh, so, you know, as we wind down towards Christmas and, you know, obviously, you know, there were supposed to be 23 games played um, originally scheduled up until this point. So where, w- where would you put Mamu in terms of the hierarchy for uh, Big East Player of the Year at, up to this point? I certainly put him top five. I, I think everybody was expecting him to uh, to do well this year, uh, being uh, having the season that he had last year and kind of really improving uh, his overall game alongside Miles Powell and having gone through the NBA draft process and received some good uh, advice there. Everybody was kind of expecting him to be the guy and therefore to do well. I think he's exceeded everybody's expectations as to how well he's actually done. So I definitely put him uh, – up there in the uh, in the top five contenders at this point for for Big East Player of the Year and and what his what, what's interesting about him is that his the, his combination of size and skill uh, leads me to to believe that he might be the best um, in, in terms of that that tantalizing pro prospect. I think that you give you get his size and his skill set uh, with how kind of that pro basketball has gone uh, in the last uh, few years. I think that he's certainly one of, if not the top pro prospect uh, in the Big East overall, whether that be at the next level in the NBA. But certainly if, he's, if he doesn't make the NBA, he's going to make a lot of money overseas uh, playing the game that he does. And so, I agree, yeah, I agree with Jason ahead. on that, Tim. Sorry to jump in there. But sure. I, do, I do agree that Mamu is Kevin Willard's best pro prospect. And – by a wide margin, no disrespect to Angel Delgado or Miles Powell or Isaiah Whitehead and what either of those three have done at the next level. But when you look at Mamu's intangibles and when you look at how his game has developed overall over three and a half years at Seton Hall, it's not a stretch of the imagination to say that he could be a late first-round pick. I know some people suggest he could be a lottery pick. I'm not ready to go that far yet. Mm -hmm. But it's not crazy to suggest that he could be a – a late first, early second rounder in the 2021 draft if, if this level of performance holds to form. And as far as Biddy's player of the year, Jason said top five. I'll go top three. I'll, okay. say it's, I'll say it's down to him. You mentioned book night at UConn, and I'll go with Jeremiah Robinson, Earl of Villanova. I'm, I'm higher on Justin Moore, but JRE has put better numbers up right now at Villanova. And the thing that hurts Creighton, is Brett McDermott has so many weapons that one pretty much washes out the other. Zedorowski will be the guy one night. Damian Jefferson looked phenomenal against St. John's on Thursday. 
You have Christian Bishop, who put a double-double up pretty much effortlessly. Mitch Ballack can knock down five or six three-pointers a night. I think the sum of the parts for Creighton is lesser than the sum of the whole, and I think that'll hurt Zagorowski, even though he got the preseason honor. Yeah, I mean, so right now, I mean, obviously Zagorowski is my preseason player of the year. Hasn't really panned out that way. Um, but, but but it's early. You, you never know. I mean, we might see the Mark Zagorowski that we saw towards the end of last year where he basically couldn't miss from three. All right. So, uh, you know, to wrap this up, um, so obviously uh, these teams are at completely different points. Um, so Seton Hall, they, you know, if they beat Georgetown, they'll be three and one. St. John's will be one and three. So they're on the converse of each other. Uh, but, you know, the way that they played against each other, you know, back on December 11th, they looked fairly equal. It was a tightly contested game. Champagne and Mamu, that was a, an, an impressive matchup uh, between those two, watching those two, you know, go toe-to-toe, bucket-for-bucket. Um, so and uh, so we talked about St. John's and what they need to do after the holidays. Uh, so, uh, Jason, uh, I'll start with you regarding what Seton Hall can do, you know, once they get through George, once they get through the Georgetown game, they they'll have a week off before they play at Xavier uh, to resume conference play. Um, what are the things that they need to uh, need to keep doing, and then obviously improve on in order to uh, live up to or even exceed the expectation of being a top five team in the conference? Well, as far as what they need to keep doing, um, you know, they they just they need to keep. Uh, Mamu going, uh, and I think that that will probably be one of the easier things given uh, his level of play so far this year. I think they need to just keep uh, keep hitting shots consistently, particularly from Miles Kale and Jared Roden. When when those two hit shots consistently, you saw it in the first half against Providence. Uh, Seton Hall is an awfully awfully tough team to stop. As far as what they need to improve on, honestly, right now Bryce Aiken, given all of his talent, his talent is obvious. Uh, he, he showed it kind of right off the bat when he first got into a game. Uh, where where it's where it's lacking right now because of the fact that he's coming back from an injury is his jump shot. Everything is kind of flat and and short. So him continuing to get his legs under him so that he can get that shot then over the rim. If he becomes a threat offensively, right, uh, which right now I don't think he is because he's still kind of working his way back from the injury and getting his wind under him. Uh, I, I think if they can get him uh, going as far as being physically uh, up to par with where he with where he wants to be. And, and then if he can stay healthy, I think that makes them a very dangerous team going forward. So it's, it's just a matter of kind of continuing to be on a good track and then also being able to integrate Bryce Aiken into the mix because Shavar Reynolds has played so well and is such a consistent defensive force on the perimeter. Uh, when, when, when Aiken comes in there right now, it, that, that part that you kind of trade with the offense-defense switch between those two, Aiken's not really able to bring that offense yet. So once he's able to do that, I think Seton Hall becomes a very dangerous team in the new year. Jaden, uh, any, uh, anything to add to that as we wrap it up? I'll, I'll double down on what Jason was saying about finding Kale and Roden consistently and getting, getting them to not shots down when Mamu doesn't have it. I also want to see Tatal Molson get more involved. This is a player that, when I was covering him at Canisius, was a first-team all-MAC talent and the conference's rookie of the year. He can average 13, 14, 15 points a game on his best effort. Now, I know Willard is bringing him in off the bench 
as the first man out, going with Aiko Biagu at the five and playing Aiki and Mamu together for almost like a Twin Towers matchup, so to speak. But the more you see of Takal Molson, the more he can do. He's not just a high-energy guy. He's got a lethal mid-range shot. He's got to work on his free throws. That, or, that already cost Seton Hall the Louisville game and some other games where he had some problems at the line. But the more you see of him, the more you'll, you'll realize just how good he, he is and how much of an asset he is to this team. I'd like to see how Trey Jackson gets managed. He made his debut yesterday as well as, as a reserve bid. Seton Hall has the depth. Now they just need to find a consistent second or third option. Kale, Roden, Molson, they're all there. And if they can knock shots down with Mambu, look out. Yeah, and, you know, like I agree on all those points. You know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, obviously you got Georgetown Seton Hall coming up on Wednesday. And then uh, St. John's, like we said, uh, they won't be in action until January 2nd, but Seton Hall will have a full, exact full week off uh, before they play at Still unbeaten Xavier, uh, that, uh, they, they might not be undefeated after Wednesday, but that'll be another interesting matchup as they meet with the Pirates having won uh, back-to-back games at the Cintas Center. Uh, so, Jaden, Jason, uh, it was about time I got both of you guys on at the same time. Uh, thanks for uh, talking some C- uh, SHU and SJU hoops. Um, Stay safe out there and happy holidays and look forward to catching up with you guys somewhere down the line. You too, Tim. Stay safe, stay blessed. Have a happy holidays, Tim. See you soon. All right. More on the igloo, wrapping this up, coming up after this. Welcome back, y'all. Thank you again to Jane Daly and Jason Garrett for talking some Seton Hall and St. John's hoops with me. So to wrap up this episode, there are going to be two non-conference games ahead happening this week in the Big East. One of them being tonight uh, between uh, Butler as they, well, uh, let me rephrase this. Uh, fumbling over my wording. So Butler is at home tonight. Their first home game, uh, actually first home game in almost a month. They're going to be hosting Southern Illinois. Uh, I think Butler will take care of business even without Aaron Thompson. I think, They showed a lot of promise with how they opened up against Indiana. I know they wish they finished a lot better, but this Butler team, they're obviously the, the superior team compared to Southern Illinois. Granted, Southern Illinois is undefeated right now. So far this season, they've beaten... Southeast Missouri State, Quincy, Murray State, North Dakota, and uh, two wins against North Dakota. So I'm I'm intrigued to see what this Southern Illinois team is going to look like. You know, heading in uh, to this game, uh, obviously, I, Butler is the superior team. They're a nine point favorite. I'm going to take the Bulldogs, but I think it's going to be a lot closer than people think, especially with how they looked in their last home game on opening night against Western Michigan. And then DePaul, fingers crossed, they'll finally play as they'll take the court Wednesday night at home against Western Illinois. As a game, I expect DePaul to win, but I'm really intrigued to see what is going to happen in terms of how much rust they're going to show because... 
At that point, four weeks of the college basketball season would have gone by without DePaul having played a game. So what I'm looking for, I'm really intrigued to see how much the offense revolves around Charlie Moore and who the supporting cast is going to be. I expect Romeo Weems to be the number two option, but outside of that, I'm looking to see how much impact the transfers are going to have on this team, mainly Ray Salnave and Pauly Policap, transfers from Monmouth and Manhattan, couple Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference schools, and I know Jaden Daly knows those two guys in and out. So I think DePaul's going to win, but I think those are the things I'm looking forward to the most in terms of what DePaul is going to bring to the table in their first game. And then, of course, they open conference play not too long after that. They'll play Sunday in a makeup game at Providence, uh, part of a three-game East Coast road trip where they'll play at Providence on the 27th, at UConn on the 30th, and then at St. John's on January 2nd. So three games in the span of just a week. So boom, boom, boom. That's how they're going to do it. So I'm going to preview the four games that are going to be happening on the 23rd around the Big East. It's a full day of games starting at 3 o'clock. You got newly ranked Xavier visiting Creighton in Xavier's first, I guess, true test of the year, if you want to count it that. First game against ranked competition. You also got Georgetown at Seton Hall, Providence at Butler, as well as newly back in the top five, Villanova visiting Marquette in Milwaukee. So I'll have my preview of that. Plus, I'm bringing back my guy, speaking of Villanova, D-Ray, Daryl Reynolds, is going to be back inside the igloo on the next episode episode coming out tomorrow. So be on the lookout for that. Until next time, this is Timmy I signing off from the igloo. Thank you for tuning in, and I will see y'all tomorrow with my guest, D-Ray.